Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be here. Um, I was just like reflecting. Every time I drive into Lurgan, I think about the fact that my, my father grew up here in Lurgan and um, was hanging out with his mates in the high street. Uh, as a young man and uh, ended up going along to a mission being conducted in the Baptist church just behind the building here and got saved. And and, uh, so at that time he was playing football for Linfield and um, at that time you couldn't be a footballer and a Christian. It's still the case, Alan, wasn't it? (laughs) You can't be a good footballer and a Christian. Uh, And so he sort of gave up his, you know, gave up his career uh, and... um, met into the ministry, met my mother, moved to England, uh, moved to Scotland, moved back to Northern Ireland, and so, uh, and then I moved across to Southampton, so I've been in, in the south coast of England for the last 37 years, it's a long time now, and so my accent has morphed over those years from Liverpudlian to Scottish, back to Irish, back to Scottish, and then down on the south coast of England where they don't understand the Celtic languages at all. So I've had to learn to slow down because the Celts speak very quickly to change some words. And so the English don't understand who the poor are. They're the poor. And uh, so it's good to be back. Okay. We are, um, Roger and I, hopefully our talks will dovetail together looking at apostolic imagination. Uh, that's the sort of focus that we want to bring today. And so I want to talk a little bit about more historic and Roger wants to lead us more into the future okay that's that's where we're going to go this morning and so the church was always meant to be a movement never meant to be an institution you know in Luke chapter 4 Jesus announces his mission uh, the reason for his existence spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was his mandate. This was why he came. We see in Mark uh, chapter 3 that he chose 12 others that they might be with him and that he might send them out. John chapter 20, verse 21, he says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The church was always meant to be a movement, never an institution. Ephesians chapter 4, when Jesus ascended, having risen from the dead, he said to his disciples, it's actually better for me and better for you that I'm not here. I would have argued with him. I said, I'm not so sure that is the best move, Lord Jesus. I think it would be much better if you hung around in your immortal body to help us all out. No, no, no. He, He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when he ascended, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, 
He gave gifts to the church. And these gifts were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 that Paul said, actually, God has placed in the church first apostles. So he gave gifts to the church, which were anointings on women and men to equip the church to fulfill his mission. First, apostles. And so he places in the church the sent ones right at number one. Now, being placed first doesn't mean better than, doesn't mean the thing that we all aspire to. It's not a career ladder. You know, we begin as a teacher, become a pastor, an evangelist, a prophet, and then a, a, an apostle one day, hopefully. It's not the CEO. It's not the top of the pyramid. It's the one anointed with the grace and the gifting to propel the mission of the church forward. And so it's less about this and more about this. It's the tip of the spearhead, not the top of the pyramid. So it shows to me that the primary focus for the church, where apostles are placed first, is mission. And apostles are the one who bring that missional focus to the church, who maintain movement. So along with the prophets, aligned with apostolic purpose and function, maintaining movement. So throughout church history, we see many movements. The Methodist church was a dynamic movement. In some places in the world, it still is a dynamic movement. They experienced uh, incredible growth, new groups springing up all over the place. They developed support structures and organization to facilitate the growth. They invested in training and developing leadership. Set up new areas of ministry, sent people overseas. Incredible momentum and movement. It was messy. It was chaotic. But they were fruitful and they grew dramatically, consistently. You know, when John Wesley died, there were 72,000 Methodists in, in England. Within 100 years, or a million. Consistent, steady growth year after year after year. Four and a half percent growth a year, consistently, every year. But in many Methodist contexts, and I know there are some Methodist friends here today, that would probably not describe what you see. Uh, there is lots of, uh, lots of reference to John Wesley in those days. Uh, but as a whole, that the sense of momentum has, has come to a bit, of a bit of a standstill. We could talk about lots of movements that became institutions or slowed down or, or ceased to exist. So how do we maintain 
movement. Because movements do tend to default eventually towards institutions. Now, institutions aren't all bad. Some institutions help society function economically, politically, but the church, I don't believe, was ever meant to be one of them. So what happens to movements? I would like to suggest a couple of reasons why movements falter. Uh, the first is this, is that there's not a passing on of the baton from generation to generation. The visionary leader dies, retires, moves on. And we have to recognize that vision isn't so much a destination, but an energy that propels us towards a destination. And so the vision runs out of steam. But I read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Generation to generation to generation. And God's purposes should unfold from generation to generation, but often don't because we end up trying to pass on our programs, our strategies, and our models rather than create an expectation and a dependency upon the Holy Spirit's creativity. So the vision needs to be passed on, but how we fulfill the vision changes from generation to generation. Every generation needs to have a fresh encounter, a fresh revelation of the vision. So Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 has an encounter with, with God and God speaks to him and says, I'm going to bless you. And through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless everyone on the face of the planet. Isaac was born through whom the promise would, would be fulfilled. But it wasn't just enough that his father had an encounter with God. In Genesis chapter 26, what happens is that God appears to Isaac and brings to Isaac exactly the same promise. Isaac I'm going to bless you through you and your descendants. I'm going to bless everyone on the face of the planet. Jacob comes along. And once again, it wasn't sufficient that his father and his grandfather received the promise from God. In Genesis chapter 28, God appears to Jacob. Doesn't give him a different promise. Gives him the same promise. Jacob, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everyone on the face of the planet. So each generation needed their own moment of encounter, needed their own revelation, needed their own fresh vision for their day. And when generations don't, we move towards maintenance. We take hold of what has been birthed, what has been established by a previous generation, and we seek to maintain it as best as we can. Movements falter. Movements default towards maintenance and institution. The second uh, reason I would like to suggest is this, is that we've, we, we lose apostolic and prophetic leadership. Rather than recognize apostolic leadership, we end up creating systems and structures and we find people to do a job. And um, we may call them superintendents or 
regional leaders, or, but they're, they're not apostolic people. They're, they're, they've applied to do a job. They, they're maintaining what exists. We don't, we don't understand what the apostolic way looks like often. You know, um, if you come out of a more conservative background where maybe you were more of a cessationist in regards to the gifts, to talk about someone being an apostle is like, can we do that? Can we say, I'm an apostle? Can we, do we believe in the gifts today? I, I think we're comfortable with, with pastors and we're comfortable with teachers and we're comfortable with evangelists and, and probably in, in, in places prophets. But to, for someone to stand up and say, I'm an apostle is like, how arrogant are you? But I want to humbly say to you, I, I'm an apostle. That's how God's called me to be. I said to our church the other Sunday, I said, just so you're clear, my primary gifting is not pastoral. And they all went, yes, we know that. <laughs> I said, my, my primary gift is, is as an apostle, so therefore I'm best in small doses. If I'm here every week speaking from the front, it'll kill you all. So that's why I'm, I, I, I can't be around all the time. I've got to go and do other things. So everyone nodded and agreed, yes, phew. Thank, thankfully, small doses of Billy is fine. But movements keep moving when apostolic and prophetic people are released to do what God has called them to do. In Acts chapter 13, the church of Antioch recognized Barnabas and Saul and released them to their apostolic calling. So when... When the focus becomes on maintaining what exists rather than creating the new, rather than stepping up into new things, rather than giving birth to new things, rather than creating space, rather than going into the space, we end up in maintenance mode. No longer apostles first. And the problem comes is that all of our structures and all of our systems are set up to employ a pastor. So structurally, we default towards the, the pastor-teacher model. That's, that's how, how it is. And therefore, we have to create not just new impetus, but we've got to look at our structures as well to facilitate apostolic and prophetic ministry. We know how to pay a pastor. We don't know how to pay an apostle, for example. Because w w where are they? <laughs> where have they gone? And we're paying them all this money to go and do what? So we have to look at our, our structures and, and our systems to release the apostolic. Um, one of my dear friends who's a Methodist minister said to me, Billy, I think what we have done is we have lost the apostles and the prophets in the Methodist church. And I was in Kenya at the weekend and um, lots and lots and lots and lots of independent churches. And I was talking about the apostolic and they said, well, this, this, this is the first time we've heard this because we know that it's not, it's not enough just doing what we're doing. We, we need more. Apostolic Leadership carries authority for breakthrough and a wisdom to build 
they understand the times and they know what to do. And so when we lose that gift from the church, we default to maintenance. We default to institution. Now, now all of this, I believe that God is at work by his spirit, renewing, rebirthing, and Roger will talk a bit more about that, I'm sure, in this next session. But as I've looked historically at how the church forms and develops, I've identified four ways that church seems to look historically, um, and I'll just share these with you and see if any of them resonate. I'm not saying these are the models, but these are some of the ways that stuff has happened over the years. The first one I would, I would call Oikos Church. Um, this is how most movements begin, small groups. Uh, most movements that last the long term don't begin big, they begin small. Uh, they're mustard seeds, uh, not big plants, not big trees. You know, Romans 15, the church was meeting in the houses, homes, uh, the early, every movement, Quakers, Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, new, new churches in homes. The, 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 this is where it begins. This church began in a, in a front room. And so um, I do see a resurgence in people experimenting with smaller settings, home churches. Francis Chan resigned recently or a couple of years ago from his mega church to run a network of house churches that 24-7 are experimenting with the missional order and houses of prayer. And the, 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 there is a place for these new small initiatives. I, I'm also finding that many of the older generation who were birthed in the charismatic house church renewal are going back to those because they... They love something about the simplicity, and then we move forward 30 years, and we've got buildings and structures and health and safety and GDPR and safeguarding and all that sort of stuff, and they want to go back to something really simple and a valid form of, of church and, and um, the oikos, the house church, based around the table, focused on discipleship, building one another up, experiencing the presence of God, seeking to be the best that we can be in our families and workplace and communities. Oikos. The second type of church that I've identified is, um, is, 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 is what I'm calling the, the minster. The word minster comes from monastery. And so we see um, across the UK in particular, this is how Britain was evangelized, through, through, through the, the monastic movement. They weren't... Um, these big, gray, austere buildings that we see today, they were communities of men and women committed to following Christ, worshiping together, praying together, and reaching out into their communities. Uh, the UK, Ireland, uh, was a, um, an agricultural society. There weren't many big cities at the time. So in this rural context, these monastic communities became the way that our nation was evangelized. I can remember... Um, coming back to Ireland a few years ago, um, being brought up in the north as a Protestant, anything Celtic was Catholic, and I had we weren't we weren't allowed to to look at it. And then I felt God speak to me about coming back and rediscovering some of my Celtic roots, 
these Celtic saints. I ended up on a bit of a road trip with a friend of mine, went, went down to Clonmacnoise near Athlone, and, and uh, the Holy Spirit had a powerful encounter with me. And he spoke to me, I'm, I'm taking you back to the future with this ancient anointing and to, and to, to begin to discover, you know, for, for 300 years, these men and women gathered in community and served the poor and trained people and sent out, I think, 3,000 missionaries all over Europe. This was the minster. And every, every town that has the word minster in it. it used to be one of those, Wimborne Minster and Charminster and Westminster and all the, all the towns in Ireland with the word kill in it were, were those places as well, Kilkenny, Kildare. This is where it began is like groups of men and women in community together seeking the presence of God and reaching out beyond themselves. It wasn't a sort of um, an attractional model. It was, a, it was a, an incarnational and a sending model. Often with expressions of disciples in the smaller villages across the region. And today I, I'm seeing these minster expressions, resource churches who, who aren't just focused on come, 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 but, but going out into the community, developing new expressions what Emmanuel are doing here with the larger gathering here and the missional communities in different, different uh, estates is that model. It's the Minster model. It's the resource church model of going out beyond ourselves in both urban and rural contexts. So the Minster, I think, is a great missional model of church. The parish church. Now, the parish church or the local church or the family church, you know, it's, it's, it's 90% of churches in the world are like this. Probably 50 to 100 people um, based in, in a locality, incarnational, faithful to the people in that locality. But this, this the, our, our parish system began, was formalized after the Norman conquest in the 11th century and everyone was Christian, apparently. You know, there was a law passed in Parliament which said everyone must go to church every Sunday. If you didn't, you were fined 12 pence. So everyone was Christian. So to, to, so to organize the nations, they, they devised the parish system, and they simply divided everyone up into equal-size communities. And they took a parish church and placed it in the middle and they took uh, the youngest son often of the wealthy landlord and made them the vicar and their task was the cure of souls in the parish everyone was a Christian so all you had to do was look after them baptize them marry them bury them so that was the system you know everyone was Christian you know they were signed up um, and that's how churches looked so when the nonconformists came along and started to break out of that, of that state control and, 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 and start to do new things, very quickly they defaulted back to what they'd known, which was let's build a church that looks like the parish church that seats about the same number of people. And so Baptist churches, Congregational churches, Methodist churches, all looked like the parish church they've come out of. So we have these local churches which were based on a model that was 
pastoral teacher based, how to create missional momentum became harder. And so there's some great models of, of missional local churches and other models where it, it's not so great. But it's a model that is probably current in, in, the, in, the, in the whole world, churches that size. And at their best, they are a beautiful, faithful presence in a particular community. Uh, but if there's not the missional movement, then we end up going down and down and down. And so I know many local churches with 12 people, 10 people, 15 people, mostly over 70, mostly over 80, because they've never engaged in a missional movement, an apostolic flow. They, they just go down. And so they, they exist. And then the, the fourth type of church that I've observed is the cathedral, um, which is not the thing to aspire to. The problem is, is that we all think that this, this is you know, big church, big numbers. Uh, they are the freaks. There are 12,500 parish churches in the UK and, and, and 40 cathedrals. And so they exist, but not very many. Globally, 2% of all churches in the world are more than 1,000 people. So it's, it's, it's not the thing to aspire to, but it's that we, we wheel those people on in our conferences and go, here's, here's a great model of church. Well, it, for those people, it might be great, but for most of us, we'll never get anywhere near that. Now, the history of cathedrals aren't great. You know, uh, they were often parish churches that grew, or priories, or abbeys, or places of pilgrimage. But wealth and power had a huge part to play. And so a lot of the cathedrals around the turn of the last millennium were established by, by wealthy landlords who, who wanted to make an, an investment for their eternal security. So they paid for these huge buildings to be built as a way to glorify God and get them quick access to heaven. And so I can remember taking some of my African friends uh, to Winchester Cathedral and they couldn't believe that there were graves in the church. Well, because the closer you were to the altar, the quicker you got through purgatory. So that's, that's why they invested all the money. So it's not got a great history. Um, however, they do do some things really well. You know, so I, I, I was installed as a canon at Winchester Cathedral two years ago. So I've got my own seat. I have the Mother Teresa seat. In uh, B39 is where, is where I sit when I go. Um, three times a day, they gather to worship and pray. They pray for me every day by name. Uh, that, that's part of their commitment. They do great events. You know, their Christmas carol concert attracts 3,000 people a night for a week. They do great events. They attract the great and the good from all over Hampshire. And so they do serve, serve a sort of purpose, but they are... They are the exception. They are not the thing that we should aspire to necessarily unless God has given you that real clear mandate. And so over the years, these different forms of church have developed. Uh, different expressions. And I suppose as I travel around, I want to ask people, so if you're a small oikos type church, just be really happy and content and multiply as much as you can to keep that mission going. If you are a local church, 
Identify your people. Identify your parish. Be a faithful presence in that community. Reach out. Serve the poor. It's going to be hard work. You're going to have to have high buy-in. If you're called to be a minister, or a resource church, what new things are you developing and innovating? You know, what areas in your region could you establish a project or a missional community or a new church plant? People will come to the center because it, it does provide something where they don't have to engage as much as being part of a local church. And for some people, that's fine stage of life or job or career means that they can't invest in the same way into the church context that other places will demand of them. They become a resource to fulfill the mission. And a few people, a time, may have an aspiration uh, to be a cathedral type church. Um, I, I'm thinking increasingly that'll be less and less. I could be wrong. And so in order for the mission to be maintained, we need the Holy Spirit. Regularly break in, speak to us, lead us. We need courageous thinking to think, I don't just want to settle for what I know, Roger will talk more about this in his session, but stepping into the, more of the unknown. I can look historically and see some of the ways that things have developed, but maybe there are new things that have not yet developed. The movement needs to keep moving. And in order for it to do that, you and I need to ask ourselves the question, what am I stepping up into? What am I giving birth to? And how am I creating space? As part of, I, I've been leading the Pioneer Network now for um, 10 years. And uh, we've just, I've just stepped up into a new role uh, to take on more of the development of the Pioneer Network in other nations. So we've got Pioneer Networks now in Australia and New Zealand and Kenya and Sri Lanka and India and the U.S. And so I'm stepping up into that, creating space for Ness Wilson, who's going to take responsibility to lead the Pioneer UK team. And so she's stepping up, and there are people who are then working with her who have to step up to fulfill some of the space that she's created. What happens? Movement continues. Movement continues. And so when, when each of us are thinking about what we are doing to create the space, to give birth, to step up into new areas of responsibility, so the momentum continues. If we don't, we will default back to institution and to maintenance and ultimately to death. But we are those who move towards life. Amen. So, um, the church's movement is always meant to be that way. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.